Make your way back to your seats. We're going to get started. And um, open up your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 2. Judges, chapter 2 is going to be our passage of Scripture this morning. And I'm really looking forward to getting into that together with you. We are in our series entitled, Seeing Christ in All of Scripture, and we're looking at the book of Judges. And so let's read Judges chapter 2 together in God's Word. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides. And their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaiash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. 
Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. And they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned their back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly. And he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. The title of the message this morning is God will never break his covenant with us. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this wonderful day. This beautiful Sunday morning where we'll get to enjoy our Koinonia luncheon after church. I'm so grateful for all the servants in our church who are going to make that possible and for the fellowship we'll share. Lord, before we share that fellowship, would you please touch our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit through your word. Transform our lives. Help us to grow in our faith in and our love for Jesus Christ, your son. And Lord, I pray that we would be moved by your covenant faithfulness to us as your people, even in the face of our sin. You are such a good God, and we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I uh, remember when I was a kid, um, I was about my son Blair's age. He's 10 right now. And I remember um, my father... Uh, speaking to me about a story, he he told me that his his father, my grandfather, uh, was at, at some point uh, playing around with a BB gun, or and accidentally got shot in the forehead by a BB gun, and and was was injured pretty significantly by it. And so I I remember my dad telling me, I, I don't want you, son, to play with BB guns. Um, and I remember. I remember um, hearing that, and it wasn't until like a few years later when um, I actually had friends in the neighborhood who started getting BB guns. And so one day, we had woods down in the back of our house where I grew up, and one day I was down in the woods with my friends, and they had their BB guns, and they were shooting cans off of a wood stump. And I remember my friends say to me, hey, CB, do you want to take a shot? And um, I, I I can't remember exactly how it played out, but I remember after some time, I remember finally uh, taking the gun and actually firing off shots at the cans. And then I heard a voice. 
from up at the top of the hill, over the fence. CP, get up here. And that was a long, hard walk up that hill as I went and got into my house. And I was uh, actually just sharing this story with my son and and, uh, telling him that I remember my dad just very lovingly but very firmly disciplining me. And I remember it to this day. I remember uh, he used the rod and I remember thinking... When is this going to end? And it just seemed like it was not going to end. <laughs> I was crying and uh, and it was painful. But I, I remember the, the enduring impression that I have of that story is I remember I, I was stinging afterward, um, and I was I was I was feeling pain. But I remember my mom coming into my room and actually saying to me, "You know, CB, you really hurt your father because of your disobedience." And all of a sudden, the, the pain that I had in relation to the discipline that I received turned into a pain in my heart that I had hurt my dad like I did. I remember going into my mom and dad's bedroom, and my dad was just, uh, he was really low over it. Um, and it's one of the, one of the sweetest memories of, of my dad. Um, such a faithful and good dad. And dad and mom, thanks dad. I remember uh, he, he he had been crying because of his son's disobedience to him and defiance of him. And I asked my dad for forgiveness, and he forgave me. And uh, to this day, that, that story remains embedded in my mind because I remember the pain in my heart of hurting my dad. And I also remember... Just his love for me as his son and the impression I have long after that story is just how a kind God had been to me to give me a mom and dad that loved me and disciplined me like they did and raised me up to understand and know Jesus. That story was coming to my mind a lot during this passage because in this passage here in Judges chapter 2, we see... Israel being unfaithful to God who they were in covenant relationship with. A covenant, in short, is, is a bond in blood, Robertson says. And, and, and a bond in blood that was forged back when the Lord first called Abram to himself. And there were animals that were, were cut into pieces that symbolized God saying with the animals in blood around them that had died and were in blood, May what happened to these animals happen to me if I do not keep the promises that I'm making to you to deliver you out from the land of Egypt and slavery in Egypt and take you to the promised land. I will be your people. You, I will be your God and you will be my people. And may what happened to these animals happen to me if I go back on my word. God promised his people Israel that he was entering into a special relationship with them amongst all the other nations of the earth, and a special covenant or bond was forged that day as God made promises as the sovereign, as the suzerain to the vassals, his people Israel, or those who were to follow him and respond to their sovereign God 
by, in return, giving covenant obedience and loyalty and love and faith to God who had made these promises to them. Israel, here in Judges chapter 2, displays a lack of obedience to God and to His covenant with Him. And so we're going to look firstly at covenant-breaking people. That's point one. Secondly, reaping consequences. And thirdly, covenant-keeping God. So let's look first at covenant-breaking people. We see this in Judges 2 where the Lord Himself, the angel of the Lord, went up from Gilead to Bochim and and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Thank God for those words. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. These altars were altars to their false gods. And they were to tear those altars down. But here's what the angel of the Lord says to them. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? They were breaking God's covenant. They were not being obedient to Him. And you see this as a theme later on in the chapter. If you look at verse 20 again, uh, brothers and sisters, um, it says, because this people, God said, because this people, my people, have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice. You see there, they transgressed the covenant. They broke the covenant. And God told them that if they disobey Him and they do not follow Him and they worship the gods of the nations that they were meant to drive out instead of worshiping God as their God, there would be consequences to that. They would receive discipline from the Lord. And a curse would be upon them for their disobedience. There would be blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience based off of whether or not they obeyed the Lord and followed Him in covenant faithfulness. And they did not do it. Sadly, they did not do it. They were a covenant-breaking people. And it pained God. It grieved God. It angered God that they broke covenant with Him. It's, it's interesting when you look at this section here in Judges chapter 2, 1 through 5. Uh, our, our series is entitled Seeing Christ in All of Scripture. Here once again, friends, we see, quote, the angel of the Lord, unquote. And throughout the Pentateuch, Genesis, through Deuteronomy, and in Joshua, and in Judges, the angel of the Lord is, is described as the special messenger that comes. He, amongst all the other times when you see the descriptions of an angel coming, it, it's meant to describe sort of just another angel who's a messenger that comes. But you see often throughout the Old Testament, the description of the angel. This is the description, as we look at this, he speaks like no other angel speaks. If you look in 2, 1 through 5, 
the angel speaks in the first person in revealing God's word to the people of Israel. Look at uh, verse 1. I brought you up from Egypt. This is the angel of the Lord speaking. I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. It's so interesting. You know, we think of uh, the words from Jesus when he says to his disciples on the night before he died that this is the new covenant in my blood. which is given for you. I will never break my covenant with you. We see the angel of the Lord speaking in the first person and saying, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. So the angel of the Lord is God himself. And we've seen throughout the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord shows up, that this is a sighting of the pre-incarnate, second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, showing up in the Old Testament prior to coming in his incarnation in the New Testament and coming and actually physically dying for our sins as he took on human flesh and died for us. Jesus has existed from eternity past with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And He shows up in the midst of His people, Israel, yet again. And He brings this news to the people of Israel who were unfaithful to the covenant of the Lord. And this is a a sad moment and a sad day, brothers and sisters, when Jesus comes and says to them in verse 3, I will not drive them out before you. And this is where we move into point two. Reaping consequences. Reaping consequences. Because they broke God's law and disobeyed God and were living in disobedience and would not obey the Lord, this phrase is said by the angel of the Lord. I will not drive them out before you the nations that are in the land, the Gentile nations, the Canaanites, any longer. But they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. This this consequence was told to the people of Israel at the end of the book of Joshua when the Lord said that they shall not Worship the gods of the nations that are in the promised land, the Canaanites, but they should drive them out. And we saw in Judges chapter 1, we were looking at this a couple weeks ago, that the people of Israel repeatedly in Judges chapter 1, we saw descriptions where they just said, ah, the the, the Canaanites here are are too strong and have chariots of iron, and so we're not going to drive them out. And hey, listen, let's use the Canaanites here instead of killing them and destroying them the way God is calling us to do in obedience to him and his covenant. Instead, let's let's use the Canaanites for forced labor because we can use them to make our lives a little bit easier. My wife and my wife Shannon and I were fellowshipping over this point and just thinking how interesting and how quickly a people who were in bondage and forced labor, who had been redeemed out of it by God's mercy and his almighty hand out of the land of Egypt, subjected others to forced labor. And, and how 
how like this our human heart is and how sad our sin is. But instead of obeying God, they, they kept their sin around. They kept the Canaanites around and did not fully obey the Lord. And the Lord said, they will be a snare to you if you keep the Canaanites around. But they would not listen. And, and, and God told them that if you, do, if you keep them around and you don't utterly drive them out, the power that I'm giving you to drive them out, I, w- I will withdraw it, and then they will become a snare to you. That will be a consequence of your sin. If you do not drive them out, then I'm going to withdraw the power, and then they are going to become a snare to you. And this is the announcement from the angel of the Lord that that time had arrived. And so it is a sobering day. It is a sad day amongst the people of Israel. And look at verse 4. Look at their response to when the angel of the Lord gave these tidings to them. It says, As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. But look at verse 5. They called the name of that place Bochum. And Bochum is actually, it means weeping, brothers and sisters. And they, they wept there at this place spoke him, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So they listened to the word of the angel of the Lord, and their initial response here is good. They weep over it. Now, if they were weeping because they had grieved God in their sins, and they repented and they were weeping, that's what the Bible calls godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7. That's what we all want to enter into. We want to pray for that. Godly sorrow is being sad over our sin because how we have hurt God with it. Worldly sorrow leads to death. And worldly sorrow is different. That's weeping because you're now experiencing the consequences of your sin. And you're sad that things are getting hard for you in your life because of your sin. You can be weeping in worldly sorrow and be far away from God. But if you have godly sorrow over your sin, you're really most concerned that your sins have separated you from God. You're concerned that your sins have hurt and have angered God. And you're, you, you want to pray for this, friends, in your life. I remember uh, recently, um, I was talking with Mark Burns, one of our deacons, our deacon of evangelism, and he was... He was uh, just saying how important it is to, to pray for this to be a reality, that tears would be near. He said, I thank God that the tears are near. I thought, what a great expression. Don't you think, brothers and sisters? Pray that tears of godly sorrow in repentance are near in our lives. I want to confess to you, brothers and sisters, that as I ponder my iniquity and my sin, even as a Christian now for many years, and just as I think week to week of my my sinfulness before God, often it is the case where I will be in tears over how my sin grieves the Lord and pains Him. And though weeping in that way is painful, it's so good for our souls. I want to commend weeping in godly sorrow over your sin 
as a practice that should never be far away from any of us. I want to ask all of us, when is the last time that you have wept in godly sorrow over your sin? We tend to, all of us, be much more aware of other people's sins, but not our own. What is so good about the people of Israel here when the angel of the Lord says this is, I'm sure there, there was an intermingling of worldly sorrow, the consequences. We're not going to be able to drive the Canaanites out like we once did. And oh, I'm so sad. Now they're going to oppress us and be hard for us to drive out. I'm sure there was some of that. But what it seems like, and I, I, I take this from the fact that they also offered sacrifices to the Lord here at Bokim, this place of weeping, that they, they wept tears of godly sorrow. They wept tears of repentance, but they also offered sacrifice to the Lord and they remembered that with the shedding of blood, there can be the forgiveness of their sins. This is a very instructive passage for us as we look at the Old Testament and it's very instructive for us also for when we sin and when we stumble. Let it be that whenever we stumble and when we sin, we like the Israelites here in verse 4 and 5, Lift up our voices and weep before God and ask God to forgive us and say and pray, God have mercy on me, the sinner. Repentance isn't meant to be this thing that you do right when you get saved and then you never repent again. Many Christians think that if you're actually repenting a lot, that's somehow like an unhealthy thing. If you're crying over your sin and weeping over it in an ongoing way, something's wrong with you. Brothers and sisters, no. Weeping over our sins and turning to God in repentance. And as First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins to the Lord, there's meant to be a frequent going to God in confession of our sins to God. And let us pray, as Mark coined that phrase, that the tears would be near. Pray that God would protect you and I from a callousness, a And that's what happens when we sin and we don't repent. Our hearts can become hardened and stubborn in our sin and we cling to it like the Israelites did. And instead of melting in repentance, we begin to dabble with our sin and keep sin around like the Israelites kept the Canaanites around, not realizing the spiritual danger that that is. If you find yourself at the foot of the cross frequently, Weeping like the Israelites did here at Bochum. My dear brother, my dear sister, take heart. That is a sign of spiritual health in your life. If you never weep, if you never feel sorrow over how your disobedience and transgressions of God's law, your personal breaking of the covenant hurts God. If you never weep over that, Friend, I want to ask you to pray that God would give you the gift of weeping. Because when you pour out your heart in repentance and with tears of godly sorrow, that is a gift of grace to us. And when we offer up sacrifice to the Lord by, for us, looking to the cross of Christ once again, And remembering our Savior hanging there and participating in the Lord's Supper frequently at church, but also just in our private devotional times and our prayer times with Jesus, 
thanking him again and again that his body was broken and his blood was shed to atone for our transgressions and our covenant breaking. Oh, brothers and sisters, to weep tears of joy that Jesus Christ would love us like that and die for us like he did. What an awesome Savior. Amen? And so, there are consequences. But the people of Israel initially, they respond very well. They weep and they make sacrifice to the Lord. But one of the things that takes place, and you see this as the, as the passage of Scripture progresses, they followed the Lord through the time of Joshua and the, and the elders who outlived Joshua. But after that, there arose, verse 10, another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Who would have thought that by keeping the Canaanites around, which seemed like such an innocent thing probably at the time, such a reasonable thing to think, how in the world does God expect us to, to drive out peoples with iron chariots? How does he expect us to fully and utterly drive them out? It probably seems so reasonable and like such a small sin of omission but watch the way these sins of omission get bigger and bigger, brothers and sisters, as we progress here in the consequences of their disobedience. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. One generation. No doubt there were sins of omission here on the parts of parents and grandparents who knew the Lord who began to neglect the call from Scripture in Deuteronomy 6 to parents to teach their children the law of God, to teach their children about the promised one who was to come. And brothers and sisters neglected to teach their kids to know the Lord. And they began to get distracted by the gods of the Canaanites around them. And they neglected to teach their kids about the Lord, and so there arose a generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. Just by way of practical application in our church and for discipleship purposes, brothers and sisters, I want to just remind each one of us here, parents, grandparents, children's ministry workers, all of us, let us be filled with a zeal and a passion to obey the call in Deuteronomy 6 to teach the next generation the law of God and the gospel of God so that they will grow up to most importantly for their lives to know the Lord. What does it profit our kids to gain the whole world and all the successes of the world, but to grow up and in the end not know the Lord? Now listen, we can be very faithful in doing that. And God and God alone is sovereign over the human heart. There can be a parent who faithfully does that in the lives of their kids, and their kids can grow up and rebel against the Lord. So if kids are rebelling against God, that is not necessarily a sign at all of neglect of teaching children. I've known faithful parents who have taught their children well all through the years, but their kids rebel against the Lord, and that is on their children. God is sovereign over the hearts of children. But what we must not neglect doing is our part, brothers and sisters. We must, as parents and as grandparents, and may we never tire, because it's never too late. 
let us get on our knees and let us fast and pray for the souls of our children and let us by our example and our love for Christ, our knowledge of the Lord ourselves and let it be clear to our kids as we walk in our homes that knowing God is the greatest passion and ambition in this household. They will learn it here in church, but they will learn it strongest by your example and mine in our homes. If we just merely come to church, and if we're merely Sunday Christians who come and worship God on Sundays, but all throughout the week, what we are devoted to, what we are passionate about, what we are most committed to, are not the things of God, but the things of this world, and getting our kids ready to succeed in this world. But we can assume that they're going to have the knowing God part. We must make it clear, parents, that the biggest thing in our hearts and our heart's desire for our kids is that they would know the Lord. If my kid is not a success in the world's eyes, but they know the Lord, that's what matters. And let's all just let that seep in. And we can hear a message like this, parents. And we can even be convicted where maybe our hearts are a little out of alignment. And we can let the moment pass. And maybe there's a need for all of us to repent and say, God, we have prioritized other things rather than our kids knowing the Lord as uppermost in our hearts, as our greatest ambition as parents and grandparents. We've also had an eye toward them being a success in the eyes of the world. And we've prioritized that too much. And maybe perhaps in a way that we're not even fully conscious of. But let us take to heart the example of the Israelites here. Because within one generation, there was a generation that rose up who did not know the Lord. Let us be sobered by that. Let us repent as parents for where we have been distracted by the gods of the Canaanites, by the gods of this age. Scripture says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they do not know the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let us not be blinded. Let us not transgress the covenant of the Lord by neglecting to teach our children ourselves. Thank God for pastors. Thank God for church. But let it be out of the overflow of our own personal love and devotion to Christ. And out of the overflow of our example in our homes so that our kids grow up to know the Lord and our grandkids are led to the Lord by us because they see our zeal and our passion for the gospel and our regular proclamation about Jesus around the table and while we're sitting on our couch and talking about God should be a delight in our households. Talking about God should be just normal everyday talk and celebrating what he's done, remembering how he died on the cross for us. Friend, listen, just as a way of practically analyzing this, is it a hard thing for you and your family to talk about God and talk about Jesus in your house? Awkward, weird, strange. It should not be awkward, weird and strange for us to talk about Jesus with one another at the dinner table and just, isn't he awesome? 
and talk about what we're reading in the word together. It shouldn't be this forced thing, this odd thing. This should be a regular thing as we are staying close with Jesus and staying growing in the knowledge of the Lord. Talking about God should be our stock and trade and should be our greatest delight. And of course we talk about all the other things that we're doing in life, but let it not be that all the other things that we're doing in life dominate and they never hear about mom talking about God and how much she loves knowing God and or dad talking about how enraptured he is by his savior who died for him on the cross. Fathers, let your children see you weeping over your own sin. Mothers, let us let us rise up with a heart of looking to Jesus and offering sacrifice through putting our faith in the shed blood of Christ on the cross and marveling at what he did in dying for us. Let your kids see your passion for your crucified and risen Lord. And that will be an environment that will be a place where your little ones will be able to grow up and know the Lord. And so we do not repeat Israel's sad story here in this passage. The consequences of this go on and on. Look at verse 11. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Those sins of omission turned into sins of commission. Just like we looked at a couple weeks ago. Sins of omission, neglecting to do what God calls us to do, lead to sins of commission. And this is the reason why it's important for us to focus on sin. It's not just so we focus on sin and become sin-focused. We want to be aware of our sins so that we can repent of it But we also want to see where sin will take us if we're not careful. It will lead to us doing evil in the sight of the Lord and serving false gods. That's where sin takes us every time. Look at verse 12. And then we we think, this would never happen to me. Look at this. They abandoned the Lord. This is God's people. This is Israel. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. This is calling to mind salvation. And they abandoned all of it. And they bowed down to false gods instead. And they provoked the Lord to anger. And in 13, they repeated again, they abandoned the Lord. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And look, there are the other consequences. Life, and this is because God is kind. God gives them over to plunderers who plundered them, verse 14. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. So the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, tells them that's going to happen and it starts to happen. And look at this tragic verse in 15. Whenever they marched out, talking about Israel, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. If you want to know what the fruit of sin is, it's terrible distress. Sin is always baiting us on the front end which, with its temporary pleasures. What it doesn't ever show you is the terrible distress that it's leading you toward and leading me toward. So brothers and sisters, let us be sobered by the consequences of sin here. Let us flee from the terrible distress and let us recognize that our sins have provoked God to anger and let us weep like the Israelites at Bochum. And repent of our sin and look to Jesus Christ, our sacrifice, 
as our only hope. And let us also thank God that he makes life difficult when believers turn away to sin. God often bars that path with thorns and thistles, making every step for a believer on the pathway of wickedness, one filled with a lot more pain often than even for unbelievers. Praise God that he does that or we would barrel down it. Haven't you experienced God and His mercy barring the way with thorns and thistles, making life miserable, making life full of distress when you pursue sin? God in His kindness, when it says the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, God didn't forsake them because He cannot forsake His people and will never forsake His people or break His covenant. But there was a temporary, God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. I harden my heart and I start pursuing sin. I can, because God loves me, expect he will oppose me in pursuing that path. And I want to bless God and thank God that he will come against me for temporary harm to do me and you good in the end. He will cause us to experience terrible distress so that we will be brought to our knees and repent. The last thing you want if you turn back to your sin is for God just to open up the path to destruction for you so you can run down it. In Romans 1, you know what you see? You see God actually giving people over to their sins. Do you know what giving people over to sin means? It means the thorns and thistles are taken away. And part of God's judgment, this side, of the grave is that he actually allows people to enter onto the highway of wickedness without being barred any longer and gives them over to it. And it's a sign of his judgment. But listen, many of you in this room, including me, have testimonies of how God made every step filled with pain as we, we, we entered into seasons of rebellion. And as we entered into the terrible distress of turning our backs on him, he brought us back again bruised and battered and cut and wounded at the foot of the cross, falling on our knees. And if it had not been for God coming against us in his mercy and his love temporarily, we never would have come back. Bless God that he's done that in our lives. Who can say amen to that? Who can just thank God that he's been so faithful to keep us and keep pursuing us? What a great, great and awesome God who's so faithful. And so the final point I want to look at is covenant-keeping God. We see it once again in Judges chapter 2 when the angel of the Lord says, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, and drink this phrase in deep, brothers and sisters, in verse 1. I will never break my covenant with you. We break He doesn't break. We break our promises. We break our devotion. God doesn't break his devotion to us. It's it's so amazing to me. This angel of the Lord, this angel of the Lord, the very one who comes here and who pronounces this judgment temporarily on his people that they're no longer going to be able to drive away their enemies because of their sin. 
leading the people to weep. This very angel of the Lord who was disobeyed bore the punishment for his people's disobedience on the cross. So though here, he brought tidings that brought weeping. Jesus Christ now brings tidings to the repentant sinner which bring joy everlasting into our lives. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What's amazing, and you can testify to this, and just by way of practical application as we close, look at this last section here where the Lord raises up judges. They're in terrible distress in their sin because they did it, and it's the consequences that God told them would happen, and they happened. And it would be so, it would be so just of God to just say, I'm going to leave you in that distress. Eat the fruit of your wickedness now. But look at the mercy of verse 16. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet, here's the hardness of heart again. They did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. And they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. So how does God respond to that? Whenever the Lord raised up, verse 18, judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Why? Oh, dear friend. Dear brother and sister, drink this in deep. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. And how do God's people respond when He does that? Look at verse 19. Right back like a dog returning to its vomit. But whenever the judge died, they turned their back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. And then look at this. This is such a description of the unrepentant human heart. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. I can find myself in that verse. Can you? But guess what God does? He continues to send more judges who save them out from their oppressors again and again and again. And that's the story we're going to look at heading into the coming weeks. Brothers and sisters, our sin is stubborn and we are stubborn in our sin, but it is not as stubborn as God's unrelenting pity and compassion and patience and kindness and I'm coming after you again. I'm coming after you again, spirit in God. That is indomitable. And that is why every one of us in this room are sitting here. I was meditating on the pity of God. And when Jesus shows up, when he takes on flesh, it says he looked out on the crowds and he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And the the word literally in the Greek says that Jesus compassioned them. He pitied us in our wickedness. He did not leave us to die in our sin, but God sent His own Son 
to come because he pitied us. I was thinking of the Good Samaritan, and here's where I'll close. The parable that Jesus taught of the Good Samaritan, remember? He was waylaid in the path the Jewish man was. And he was beaten and robbed and left for dead on the street. And when passerbys, other Jewish passerbys went by, they passed right by. And some of them passed over on the other side of the road and left the man laying there bloody. But then there was a Samaritan that came. And he came and he took pity on the Jewish man that had been assaulted. And he used his own money and he took care of him and he binded up the wounds and made sure that he was taken care of and took care of all of his needs and showed mercy and pity and compassion on a man who was not even close to him in ethnicity and who the Jewish people hated. The man who was hated actually showed love towards those who hated him. And brothers and sisters, I was thinking, you know, Jesus, you are the greatest good Samaritan because I have sinned and have been stubborn and have gone back to my sin again and again, even As I've been a believer for many years, I still stumble in many ways. And God has never given up on me. He's never given up on you. But instead, when other people would pass by and just leave us bloodied in the street with no compassion at all, and just simply looking down on us and saying, go ahead and suffer for your sins, CB. You deserve it. It's the fruit of your own wickedness that you're laying down there in the dust and the mud. Live in it and die in it. God sends his son Jesus down and Jesus comes and he crosses the street. He comes down from heaven to earth and he comes and he lays hold of me and he lays hold of you, believer, and he binds up the wounds that your own rebellion against him caused and he binds them up and he heals you and he puts you up on your feet and sets your feet upon a rock and he dies for all of your transgressions and wickedness and he cleanses you from all of your sin. And he supplies the very righteousness that you lack to stand before his father on the day of judgment by giving you the free gift of his own earned righteousness to you in justification. He gives you everything to stand and to be healed and to be made whole and to be forgiven and redeemed and saved. And you and I did absolutely nothing to deserve it. And not only that, We deserved wrath. We deserve to be taken bloodied in the street and cast into the fire. But God said, no, I'm going to put my son in the fire. I'm going to put him up on the cross and I'm going to punish my son for C.P. Etter's wickedness and sins. And for all who believe in Jesus, he will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will do what he did for me. He will save you. Friend, while there's still time, will you turn to this God who shows pity? No matter where you're at right now, no matter how far you've fallen, no matter what's going on up in your head and how far you've drifted mentally in your thoughts or in your speech or in your actions from God, maybe some of you here would say, there's no way, CB, that God would ever forgive me in light of what I've done. Listen, I can tell you as a forgiven sinner, he is a God of pity and a God of compassion, and a God who will love you and never let go. Cling to him, run to him right now, and and cling to him in repentance and faith. Do like the Israelites here in Judges 2, 1 through 5, and fall on your knees and begin weeping, and look to the cross and offer up the offering 
of your faith as you look to Jesus Christ and are saved. And God will receive you. God will forgive you and cleanse you. God will save you from the wrath that's coming so that you can enjoy Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, forever and ever. Is he not awesome? Can we just thank our resurrected Savior for how good he is and for how much pity he has shown? Thank you for your pity. Thank you for your pity. We praise you for your pity, Jesus. We praise you for your pity, Father. Even after you had been kind to us, we still turned back to our sin and doubled our efforts. But you kept coming. You did not stop coming after us. And God, how can we thank you enough that the promise you say, angel of the Lord, that I will never break covenant with you. The greatest evidence of that, Jesus, is when you came and you took bread and you broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. Jesus, you forged the new covenant and instituted the new covenant in your blood. And you have given us new hearts. And you've put Holy Spirit within us. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you live within us right now. And the law of God is no longer external to us, but it's actually written on our hearts under the new covenant, so we desire to follow you and obey you. Help us, Almighty God, to look to you and your compassion and your pity today and to take heart that you are such a loving God who shows such compassion for your people. We are so blown away and we love you and we're grateful for it. We don't take it for granted that you are this kind of God. We weep tears of gratitude and we praise you, Jesus, for your sacrifice on the cross, which has made all this possible. We love you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Love you, church. What a great Savior. And now we get the fellowship over some sweet food together. I love these Sundays, don't you? Well, what we're going to do is at this time, we're going to have everybody go and gather their children for children's ministry. Let's have uh, those larger families with children wait until the... Uh, the, uh, the singles and those without children go through the line so we can have everybody get their food as fast as possible. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.